Hello, I'm Ellie Warden. Welcome to the Heart to Mind Transformation Station, sharing stories related to the importance of building legacies that lead to greater health and wealth within your family. Come on, get on board. Today's guest, Kohan Killitz, has been an animator, a film director, an award-winning screenwriter, a martial artist, a teacher, and a globetrotting adventurer. But his chief passion is history. He studied history and Middle Eastern studies at the University of Arizona. He is a fascinating person with a fascinating story, and I'm excited to welcome Kohan Killitz to today's show. Welcome. Oh, thank you. I'm, I'm glad someone considers me me fascinating. I, 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 may, I may very well be an object of study myself. I, I, I do hope so. You know, it's all been my dream that someday I get so successful that people will go on my YouTube channel and say, oh, I wonder what's the, the deep political meaning and the satire of <laughs> the ironic of Turdy Pooh. Well, I certainly found a lot of deep meaning as I was doing research for you because you are really quite a colorful character in many ways. And getting to know you really has been very, it's like life imitating art because it's like no matter what perspective you look at you from, you get a totally different perspective because you are so many, you have so many canvases to you. First of all, it starts out with your name, Killitz. That is more than just a name. It has a meaning. Tell us, what does that mean? Okay, so Kilitz is basically my Latinization of the canonized word halis, which means restorer. It sort of has like a meaningful for me because my goal in life has been to sort of restore these old ways, these old canonized, you know, traditions, and and have pe- help people understand, you know, the ancient world. They say if you don't learn from history, you're doomed to repeat it. Of course, they also say the one thing we learn from history is that no one ever learns from history. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and so actually, I'm putting the accent on the wrong part of you. It's killets, right? It's more of an accent on the let's part. It doesn't matter at all. <laughs> You're just going to answer to everything, right? <laughs> killets. Kill Some people have called me killets. Some people have called me klutz. Some people uh, have called me klitz. It, it really doesn't matter, like the, the vowels. In, in the Semitic languages, it's the consonants that matter. Okay, all right. Well, we want to make sure that we're giving you due credit because, it, like you said, you do have this as not just a name. It is a meaning. And also I noticed as you were writing your description, it could be, it could be a verb. It could be a noun. It could be, it could be an adverb. It could be a lot of different things to different people. That was what was so interesting to me about, about you. You know, you're colorful, you're fluid, yet you conform to a specific genre, which is the, the study of history. Tell us about how all that came about to be. Well, I've, I've always had this sort of deep interest in history. And I think it, it arises from a sort of like empathy on my part. The thing that people find weird about me is I don't have this sort of like chronological bias to think that lives today are necessarily more valuable than lives 2,000 years ago. To me, you know, a person is a person if they lived 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and I am capable of feeling empathy for them. And the other thing about history is it's so goddamn interesting because, you know, everyone likes to read a gossip column. Well, not everyone, but there's a lot of interesting gossip columns. 
imagine history is just like the world's greatest gossip column. They're only the most interesting things that have ever happened ever that managed to be recorded. That's the cool thing about history. And so you have managed to capture that through your art, through your writing, through your animation in order to bring it to life. Is that what it is? Yeah, that's my goal. And I like to say that when I'm, when I'm, I'm writing a story, I don't, I don't necessarily just want to write a story. A lot of my work has been like to create a new genre, sort of like how, you know, Westerns are a genre or like a lot of different historical periods have their own like little genre. And my goal is to create like a Canaanite or ancient Near Eastern genre with its own, you know, unique tropes and kind of ideas as a way of exploring, you know, the, the big ideas of history, basically, well, but in a human Way. In a human way. Well, let's talk about your novel, Seven Times and Seven Times I Bow, available on Amazon, just giving you a shameful plug. And you talk about it illuminating and restoring a former world, one which is alive with color and activity, yet already millennial old, which is ancient Canaan. Talk about your passion for Canaan and why the book is so important for us to read it today. Well, I think there's a lot of ways in which the world of the ancient Canaanites is very, very relevant to us today. Certainly, it's interesting for me, particularly as being from like the Southwest in, in Tucson, as we're sort of like in this border area between Mexico and the United States. And human cultures do not stop at a border, you know. It's sort of like a gradient. And the most interesting stories and the most interesting art to me comes from the the places where different cultures mix and mingle. And Canaan was kind of like that for the ancient Near East. It was between like Anatolia in the north, Mesopotamia in the east, and Egypt in the south. It was an interesting mix of cultures and also this sort of like creativity. The theme of my book is, is oppression. The Canaanites were an oppressed people who've been the victim of successive empires, one after another, but they've never let, you know, the fact that they're being subjugated by another empire stand in the way of their individuality, their creativeness, and their desire to, you know, progress human civilization. I mean, everyone's heard of, like, the Phoenicians inventing the alphabet, but few people know that the alphabet that actually preceded the Phoenician alphabet was the Proto-Sinaitic alphabet, which was invented by Canaanite slaves working in copper mines in the Sinai Desert. Sort of like this creativity this intangible like legacy of oppressed people in the world that makes such a big difference. And people should, when we're studying history, always hear it from the perspective of the powerful, the rich. And I, I wanted to show the, the side of history that's not always talked about. You know, the cultures that did not have the strong empire, the, the ones that were, that were hated, the hated people like the Canaanites. Most people who know about the Canaanites know about them from the Bible. But they're sort of like condemned as like the ultimate evil. And then God, you know, says, you must, Israelites, you must kill every Canaanite man, woman, and child, even the animals. But the young virgins who have not yet known a man, you may take them for your wives. A language like that. Well, it is true that history, which is his story, is written from the perspective of the victor certainly not from the one who has been conquered. So what you're doing is you're taking the story and reversing it 
and mm-hmm. showing the other side because there's value to everything are obviously they wouldn't have been there in the first place if there was no value. There's no such thing as, well, they're just a slave. There's a value in that type of human toil. And so what mm-hmm. you're doing then is representing the other side of the story. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I wanted to represent like the Canaanite side of the story. Also wanted to show like some of these really inspiring stories about women from the time period. Most people, the one figure that they know from this time period is Nefertiti, who is this most famous beauty, but she was far from being like the only powerful woman in this period. Queen Tia, like the wife of the pharaoh Amenhotep III, was like among like one of the most powerful women in history. She controlled the whole Egyptian empire when, when her husband was, was ailing and her son was sort of like distracted by inventing a new religion. And then there's the Lady of the Lions, who practically no one has ever heard of, which is a, a bit of a pity because, like, you know, for all the, this, like, literary troops of, like, warrior women, or, like, you know, the, the Lady of the Lion is actually a good historical example of a woman, a woman warlord in, like, this era of warlords, and she was able to stand her own against the most powerful men of her time. But aren't these really the situation or this is the situation that has occurred in history all throughout where the female has been denigrated. The female has been totally left out. Even if you look in the story in the Bible, you would almost think that the story of women was totally left out. When in fact, when you dig into it, the story of women in the Bible, they were very much up front. The the interesting thing is about women in Abrahamic religions is that as time went by, they started getting more written out and written out. When you go back to the origin, which is the Canaanite pagan religion, women were front and center and had a lot of the same rights as men, like to own property and to represent themselves in court that they wouldn't have for like thousands of years later in other cultures. The Canaanite culture, and that's part of why, you know, the Abrahamic religions condemned them so much is because women had a higher status and more freedom. This was seen as like a sign of their moral decadence. (laughs) But then when you look at women, I mean, women are the origin of life. You know, women are the ones who, when you think about the whole nourishment of a nation, you think of women, you think of the health of the women. Mm -hmm. Uh, When did this change and why? I think, you know, the status of women started to, get eroded a lot more, especially towards the end of the Bronze Age, when it sort of transitioned into the Iron Age. Societies transitioned from a more polytheistic model of religion, where there were many gods and many goddesses who were of roughly equal status. You could point to women and female gods as being equal to like men and, and male gods in the religion. But by the, the Iron Age, which is like after the Bronze Age collapse and the Iron Age happened, Religion sort of switched to a more henotheistic model. A good example of this is Judaism, but you also see this in the Assyrian worship of the god Ashur. And typically, these societies became more warlike and more built around, like, war gods, who were usually male, although not exclusively. And the female deities were sort of relegated to the sidelines. And it really sort of completed this process with the advent of Christianity. 
where they sort of like all but eliminated the female divine role in religion and sort of popped up this Abrahamic model of like the men are the rulers, they lead in religion, women are subordinate. Like in, in the Bible, they say, in the New Testament, they say, suffer not a woman to teach over a man. I may be wording this wrong, but the complete opposite in the older pagan religions, where actually women tended to have a higher status than men in religion. The most powerful religious figures were like usually the priestesses. Do you think this was really kind of a, a blowback in terms of that, you know, that religion itself? As if you kept the same standards and the same understandings, the same worships, then how do you change any kind of society? And if you're trying to change the society, then the way is to begin to eliminate the history and even the appearance of a particular group. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that has been the sort of like the tendency. And you know, archaeology sort of shows that after the Israelites took over the land of Canaan, it wasn't as if they completely eliminated the Canaanites and the Canaanite religion. Uh, that the religion was actually alive and well in the Israel Israelite kingdoms, but it was sort of re- relegated to a subordinate role. A good example of this is the reforms of King Josiah. When he, he was intending to centralize royal power and, around Jerusalem, he ordered that all the temples and all the other cities in the kingdom of Judah be destroyed, all the ones to the other gods, and all the the priests of the other gods should be sacrificed on their own altar. Religion has always sort of been a tool by the the leaders of society to, you know, justify and legitimize their actions and to centralize authority. And, you know, that's been the great advantage of monotheism over polytheism is because polytheism is more democratic it divides power between a larger amount of people, whereas monotheism is more attractive to the rulers because they can say, this God is the only God that you're allowed to worship, and you must worship him how I say, because I am God's chosen ruler. And that is the scary thing when you start to see rulers take on that position of, of the, you know, I am the chosen one, I am the one that God has chosen, because then it becomes extremely subjective and uh, abusive, abusive of the power. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is the thing that when we look at where we are today with so many cultures, it is that standards have been set to basically subjugate one person, one group over another, which in fact squashes the whole process of that uh, evolving into something even greater. Mm-hmm. I like to think like the, the origins of the Jewish religion I sort of like this revolution, but it's like it has an economic basis because the people who founded like the Jewish religion were sort of like the dregs of society. They were peasants and, and herders who were sort of kicked up by the constant warfare and sort of forced to, you know, adapt to like a violent and warlike way of existence. as was like the Habiru sort of mentioned in my book. And, and sort of like as a part of their revolution, you know, and a desire to create equality, they took upon themselves like a lot of the, the customs of the old elite, the old royalty. Like a lot of Jewish customs are really just like Egyptian or Pharaonic customs. Like Canaanite, you know, men and women tended to be more or less monogamous. A one man, one woman sort of like marriage was the norm. 
But once they transitioned to a Hebrew society, the Hebrews, they adopted the, the the pharaoh's custom of like massive you know polygamy, where where men would take captives, captive women, and force them to to be their wives. And this was sort of like their way of lower people asserting a higher status. I was always amazed by that when I would read about that in in the Bible, especially like with Solomon. You think about that he had asked the Lord for wisdom. And then he ends up with 300 wives and 700 concubines. I was wondering, well, good gracious, that's quite a man. How does he service all of those women? It seems a little self-centered well, there. Guy. And he was very wise, exactly. He was very wise. Actually, they say that Solomon's sin was to, you know, worship the gods of his foreign wives. But I, I actually think, you know, back then, most of the people were just worshiping whatever, whatever god. There was no concept of monotheism in in like Solomon's time. Right, exactly. Well, most of the Bible, you could, you could say, was kind of like written by like the Trump supporter version of the Jews because it was a very radical and extreme version that was preserved in the Old Testament that we have. Whereas most Hebrews at the time uh, took a much softer line on most issues. Interesting. That's very interesting that you would say that. So it's like we're seeing one thing visually or in writing and script, but actually the lifestyle that was being led was very, very different. And that could be why there were so many, you know, rules and restrictions because of the need to not allow people to have that freedom. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like you do what I say do because this works, work, what's works for me. And then many times we know that people weren't doing what they said they were supposed to do. So <laughs> it was it was all a facade anyway. It was just a control factor when it came to the populace. Mm-hmm. Well, the interesting thing about the Canaanite civilization in particular is how fundamentally the foundations of our Western society it is. Since the two fundamental parts of Western society that they tend to point to is the Judeo-Christian religion, which originates from ancient Canaan. And the the Greco-Roman classical civilization, which in a large sense was wrongly influenced by Phoenician and Canaanite civilization as well. The weird thing is like for a civilization that's so influential on human history, it's not very well understood or not much talked about. And that's where your book comes in. I ask you the question, mm-hmm. why is it so important for people to read? I mean, you look at how many books are out there that have been written. I always want to know, why is it important that we read your book? And you've done a very good job of explaining that because many of us, myself included, would not have been aware of the true impact of the Canaanites on the overall history of the world. Mm-hmm. It is oh, it is lost. Like a lot of people read books because it's good fun. That's why I tried to write my book. So it was a lot of fun. Right. Despite having a lot of darker subject matter, I, I do use a lot of humor and I feel, I feel like the important thing uh, about reading in general is about developing empathy for people, other people in different situations than you. And then you carry through this empathy to other people in your life. I, I, I've always been a big believer in the traditional value of history as moral instruction. The facts are, are in a lot of cases, the facts are irrelevant it's the the learning of the morality and empathy and like understanding human nature that you get from history that's the important part 
That is very true. That's why I even said that the acronym for the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth. (laughs) That's what it stands for, because if you read it, it is a series of basic instructions that if we even look at our life today, you can always go back to those ancient writings. The basics are the same. The basics are the same. Love your neighbor. Don't do, you know, don't harm. Don't do to others what you wouldn't want to have done to you. Respect your parents. Respect, you know, life. Respect the environment. You know, don't kill. Don't steal. Those are the basic things that we all, no matter what society you go into, as they say, it's written in our hearts. Mm -hmm. It's a very universal thing. Of course, you know, like all humans have a common origin. We all come originally from the same part of East Africa and spread out over the world. And I think that that begs the question, you know, is there this like original moral truth that our ancestors had so long ago? I'm not, I'm sort of tempted to believe that. It's talking about like Jesus Christ. You know, have you ever heard of the deity Baal or sometimes pronounced Baal? Yes. Uh, Yes. Most people have a lot of like negative stereotypes about him, like calling him a demon. But usually when people actually read what the stories actually have to say about him, they, they're surprised to find out that he's actually very Christ-like. He's sort of like some very close similarities, like, for example, teaching about peace and love. And the other one is making the ultimate sacrifice for the good of humanity. And then he gets re- resurrected. See, you see this sort of like dying and rising God story all throughout world, world religion and mythologies because it's so core to like who we are as people that we, we, we would believe something like that, right? I'm a very big believer. Rather than like putting up walls between groups of people saying, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a, a Jew, I'm a pagan, I'm an atheist. Instead of that, let's tear down these like identities and sort of view ourselves in terms of our common humanity. I, I know like every religion says that, but it always gets corrupted when there's like this priest who says they must do as we do. Our law of peace is better than theirs. So they must die. It always gets corrupted. Exactly. That's, that's the important thing is to tear down the walls between us. I'm a pretty good thing for that. The first step to wisdom is realizing you're not the center of the universe. Mm. The second step to wisdom is realizing you are the center of the universe, and so is everyone else. Mm. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I know, too, that in your personal journeys that you have gone to some of the farthest parts of the world. And not only that, you've gone with some of the most colorful characters in the world as well. Chronicle one of your most life-altering moments. I'm trying to think of some of the stories to say about that. Any sort of thing like that, it's hard to, you know, summarize. I can just say that I did spend about a year in Morocco trying to teach English. That's a funny enough story there. Uh, and uh, Well, did it work? No. <laughs> because, uh, they just weren't it, it into that, sense. huh? <laughs> but I, for, for a while, I was living in this neighborhood called Sidi Moumin in Casablanca, living off of, like, basically the equivalent of $250 a month. It was just right next door to this, like, big beetling village, or like a slum, and there would be donkeys everywhere, cows are just grazing in the park, sort of like at the outskirts of town, and there's garbage everywhere, sheep. But the people there are so nice. 
I'm full of praise for Moroccan people. I mean, that was like the defining experience of my life was getting to meet these people. Well, that's certainly meeting them on the ground level, too. You're not meeting the high and mighty, the pompous, the well-moneyed, the well-heeled. And, you know, you're meeting the people that are the real people. And I mean, I know that there's Mm -hmm. a level above those people and a level above those people. But to be able to relate to the people that others will look at as being at the bottom of the of the barrel, I think does give you a unique perspective on the culture as a whole. And it seems to have certainly changed your life because it has given you that opportunity to see it from that level of oppression and Mm -hmm. to to be able to, to really verbalize it, to capsulize it so that others can understand and see it as well. I think that's what you do a great job of in your novel, seven times and seven times I bow Uh, again, am available on Amazon, but (laughs) you, before we go, you have a great YouTube channel. Tell us about your YouTube channel and how they can access it. Okay. It's called Kohan Collect, K-O-H-A-N, K-I-L-L-E-T-Z, K-O-H-A-N-K-I-L-E-T-Z. That's how you spell my silly name. Um, it's Sounds like a jingle. <laughs> I break the one rule that you have to follow if you want your YouTube channel to get big. You have to focus on doing something that people like. And the, the weird thing about my YouTube channel is I just do just whatever comes to mind and... And a lot of times it's just really random stuff. And then, of course, I, I do I do do a lot of historical stuff, and that's the stuff that people actually like. But I also do do music and comedy and and all all sorts of other things. And art. You, know? you showed me a lot of your artwork. Mm-hmm. Well, like my, my my movies, my historical movies are usually animated with these little like clay characters. I mean, I made my first movie actually when I was sixteen years old. When I was in high school, I was a, a junior in high school and I was studying calculus. And I, was, I realized I was wasting like two hours of every day, you know, studying this subject. And I'm like, when am I ever going to use this calculus? It seems like a waste of time to me. So I stopped doing calculus and took a free period. And an hour a day for the second semester of my junior year in high school, I wrote a screenplay. Never, never wrote one before on like line sheet paper i used my best penmanship and i basically just said how can i make the most outrageous story possible sort of like based on roughly on real history that's very very obscure real history and i made this movie called Kart kadesh it's hard to describe the animation is really crude but it's a surprisingly interesting and entertaining story and really in the end isn't that what it's about though like crude and like, you know, sophomoric in its humor. But it's you. Yeah, it, it's very me. I would <laughs> say that from the beginning, I've always put my personality on display. Well, I think that when they certainly watch your YouTube channel, when they read your novel several, seven times and seven times I bow, available on Amazon, that they will definitely see your personality, feel it, and be drawn to you like I was just in uh, seeing you on Facebook. People can go on Facebook and look your name up and find your book. We certainly do encourage them to study you a little more and to support what you're doing. And again, I'm just appreciative of you taking the time to come on today to share your insight um, on the Canaan people, the Canaanites. And that again, very interesting perspective, one that I was not aware of. Sure that many of our, our listeners are not aware of, but you've given us 
the knowledge and the exposure that we need to go forward and do a little more research for ourselves. So again, thank you so much for coming on board. And we want to thank everyone for listening today. And you can catch our Heart to Mind Legacy Transformation Station on your favorite player. Be sure and support Koan Killitz in all of his artful endeavors. Thanks again, Kohan, and to all of you all, be well. Yes, be well. This has been the Heart to Mind Transformation Station. I hope you enjoyed today's program. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Tune in again next week.